Thank you, Sophia. Thank you for uh, inviting me to uh, participate on your podcast, Poets Unplugged. I have a new book out. It is uh, the second book in a trilogy. It's called Hell on the Border. The first book was called Follow the Angels, Follow the Doves. There are two books in the trilogy called the Bass Reeves Trilogy. These are historical novels uh, about Bass Reeves, who was the most successful, the most feared lawman of the Wild West in America. He used to be well-known, and he's been whitewashed from history for over a hundred years. So if you haven't heard of him, uh, that makes perfect sense. What make what does not make perfect sense is why we don't know who he, you know, who he was in the first place. Um, well, for political reasons, he's been erased. He was black. He was born a slave. He had some unique opportunities as a slave to learn how to shoot a gun. And he was such a good marksman that his master entered him into turkey shoots, these competitions on the frontier and Indian Territory or what's present-day known as Oklahoma. Um, During the Civil War, he he, uh, was the body servant for his master who was a cavalry officer for the 11th Texas Regiment. Those experiences helped inform him later in life when he became a deputy marshal in 1875. And he was a lawman for 32 years, unparalleled. Um, There are historians who believe that he could have, and some argue that he was the inspiration for the Lone Ranger. Um, There are a lot of similarities between... uh, the real Bass Reeves and the fictional Lone Ranger, uh, Bass Reeves had a strong ethic. He wa- he didn't want to uh, kill if he didn't have to. He preferred to arrest the people he was seeking. He preferred nonviolence. He saw that as uh, as a way to protect himself as a black man killing many white men, you know, um, he was wise. He knew that the world would change and eventually ask too many questions about why is this black man getting to kill white men? Of course, it wasn't just white men. He, he, he arrested and captured and killed people of all races and gender. Um, but he wanted to, uh, also preached to them. He was a faithful man. He was religious. He wanted to arrest them if he could and tried to turn them around. He truly believed in freedom. He wanted to free them of uh, their evil spirits or thoughts or, or ways. He wanted to reach out to them and hopefully turn them around, save their souls, um, Give them a way to return to society if they if they get out of prison and uh, 
be productive individuals. So he didn't really want to go around killing people, but he did when he needed to. So anyway, the first book that I, uh, that I wrote, Follow the Angels, Follow the Doves, is his origin story. It's about his, his young life as a slave and his desire to be free. And the second book, Hell on the Border, picks up um, when he's at the peak of his career in the 1880s. And it, it flashes back and it brings you up to date. You don't have to read the first book to, to understand the second book, but it, it covers some territory of the past so you, you understand who he is, who he was, what led him to this, to this place with, behind a badge. He often, like the Lone Ranger, wore a disguise. Now, he had a natural disguise with his black skin, and he used that wisely. Uh, most, law, most outlaws wouldn't expect a lawman to be black, so um, he used that to his advantage to be able to, to sneak up on them, catch them unawares. He also would add to that a tramp disguise or dress up as a cowboy. One, one time he, um, he reportedly dressed as a woman. So he, he was willing to do anything and everything to make that money and preach that gospel and turn those bad guys in. Um, that's who Bass Reeves was. So I'm going to read an excerpt from uh, Hell on the Border, my new book, from the chapter Scrambled Eggs and Brains and ripe cantaloupe. To arrest Jim Webb the first time, he had woken before sunup, before anyone else, and pulled out his straight razor and a triangular shard of saloon mirror he had picked up years earlier after a brawl and shaved the itch off in the firelight. He'd no longer be a tramp on the run who he'd needed to be to arrest Thomas and Wayne Coldiron. He'd now be a traveling cowboy with his traveling cowboy companion so he could afford a little comfort. He'd still have his unwieldy mustache and the freckles peppering his light brown cheeks so his face would be clean but not too clean. He'd have the look rather of a distinguished derelict, somebody with nothing to steal, and someone with nothing to steal was no one to bother with and no one to fear. The same look he wore at home and took to church. Wearing denims and dusty boots, he buttoned his leather cuffs, buckled his gun belt with both pistol handles pointing forward, and put on his black coat and black 10-gallon Stetson. If Jenny, that's his wife, if Jenny were there sitting on a rock or log, she would go on about how good-looking he was and would hug and kiss him. Her hands wouldn't leave him. Of all his disguises, the cowboy was easily her favorite, while his was easily the tramp, even if the shoes weren't worth anything for walking a country mile in. He liked remembering when he was broke and had nothing. He liked knowing he wasn't anymore, and he liked knowing people underestimated him. He liked coming from behind, being the salt of the earth. He felt most like Jesus then, as a cowboy, he felt most like God. He would have to remind himself he wasn't. In the left pocket of his coat, he carried a Sheffield Bowie knife in a buckskin sheath. When he carried it, he always carried it in his left pocket 
so he'd always know where it was, just as he always kept his rifle scabbard slung over, slung on the right side of his saddle, his catropes on the left side, and his revolvers always holstered handles forward for a cross-draw. Not only so briars and underbrush couldn't snatch a trigger and shoot his horse dead beneath him, but so he could always expect his pistols to be where he reached. Unless he had reason undercover to alter a pattern, he preserved it, always. Always his weapons in the same locations. Willie fried potatoes and boiled coffee, and still before sunup, Bass and Floyd were mounting their horses. The Washington McClish Ranch was one of the oldest and largest and most profitable ranches in the territory, owing to Dick McClish's Chickasaw ancestry and political connections and the ranch's convenient location a few miles northeast of the Chisholm Trail's main entry from Red River Station, Texas. Moving herds east of Texas had been a boon ever since the end of the Civil War. A steer that sold locally in Texas for $5 could collect as much as 40 in the northeastern markets, and the Chisholm Trail took most of them up to the rails in Abilene, Kansas. To move the herds, the Washington McClish Ranch hired up to 50 cowboys at any given time, and Webb's Reputation as a foreman was that he ruled them ruthlessly with his fist. To protect his cattle and their grazing land, he was willing to do anything, even kill his neighbor, a black circuit preacher, for allowing a small grass fire to get out of hand and cross property lines. The duty Bass had been charged with was one of the more extraordinary developments of his 45 years. Here he was. Judge Parker's most trusted deputy, a black deputy, pursuing the arrest of a prominent white man for killing a black man. Times had changed, all right, right along with the rising value of beef. According to the description the victim's wife had telegraphed the court, Webb stood five feet nine inches tall, had dark sun-baked skin with deep vertical wrinkles in his cheeks that looked like scars, and typically rode a bay gelding with another bay gelding in tow. Bass recognized the spare horse as an old strategy among Indians avoiding capture. Once you exhausted one horse, you could change onto the fresh one and easily elude your captors on their own exhausted horses. So Bass took precautions against Webb's precaution, leaning to catch up, uh, planning to catch up with Webb off his saddle at the ranch house during breakfast. Floyd rode beside him on a gray mare. He chewed tobacco and slouched his shoulders. They rarely spoke this early, not until the morning behind them had caught up to the west in front of them, but by then they were almost at the ranch. We'll ask for breakfast, Bass said. Makes sense, Floyd said. They arrived at eight o'clock, the overlapping W.M. brand carved into the cross post of the white gate. Cowboys were already out in the open pastures herding cattle into separate pens for branding and castrating while flocks of red-winged blackbirds feeding on grass seed picked up like cyclones one after the other and resettled out of the way. A dirt path rutted by wagon wheels led to a log ranch house with the bunkhouse and dining hall connected by a long dog run 
where three men sat on shadowed benches. Across from the ranch house, beside a barn, a blacksmith pounded iron in his shop. Hope we ain't too late, Floyd said. I'm starting to get hungry. Bass surveyed the pastures once more as if merely wiping his face on his sleeve. He prayed those cowboys minding their work kept minding their work. There were a lot of them. He admitted, a sausage patty sound good. Don't it, Floyd said. They dismounted, tied their horses to the rail outside the barn, and walked toward the ranch house. The blacksmith's hammer behind them was steady, and their steps fell into its rhythm. Two of the three men in the dog run rose to their feet, arms casually hanging by their sides, pistols in their right hands. Midway in the road, Bass held up a hand in peace, still unable to see any face well enough yet, but race-wise and size-wise, they could all be Jim Webb. The blacksmith paused in his work. Morning, Bass said. Howdy, Floyd said. The man standing on the right nodded his head, but no one in the dog run spoke. Bass stopped at the base of the porch steps and removed his hat. Now he could see the man on the right had black furrows in his sun-leathered face, like he'd been swiped twice by a panther. The man on the left was just the man on the left. We a bit far from where we gotta go today, Bass said, so we was wondering if it wouldn't be too much trouble to oblige you for a little something to eat for me and my buddy Floyd here. Webb, on the right, tipped his head. Where's a bit far? His voice was deeper and raspier than Bass had expected from a man his size, as if he'd once survived a hanging. Got ranch work in Montague, Bass said. My oldest there. Thought we might meet up. Webb's small gray eyes looked away toward the barn, toward the blacksmith, who was now hammering again. Then he motioned with his pistol for Bass and Floyd to step up, and Webb backed away, telling the man seated on the bench to cook them up something. The other man, whose pistol hung by his side, followed Bass and Floyd under the roof of the dog run. The door to the dining hall was propped open by a limestone brick, like the limestone bricks mortared in the rear kitchen chimney. The cook went through first, followed by Bass and Floyd, and by the two with their guns drawn. We appreciate this, Bass said. Sure do, Floyd said. Bass dipped his hand into his pocket and slapped a silver dollar on the nearest table before pulling out a chair and sitting. We aim to pay, though. We ain't broke. We ain't begging. Webb shook his head. Really? We want to, Bass said. Or I want to, he smiled. My friend here don't care. Floyd shrugged. Free or not, it'll taste the same. Am I right? Webb shook his head. Free always tastes better. At the end of the table, he pulled out a chair, and his friend did the same. His friend had a half-smoked cigar tucked behind his ear. He was the only one in the room not wearing a hat, the only one with a beard, the only one who hadn't spoken yet.
Y'all's got a big ranch, Bass said. Is one of you Washington or McLish? Shit, Webb said. You McWish, huh? Floyd said. He laughed and elbowed Bass, and Bass smirked at Webb and Webb's friend, and Webb's friend smirked back. Webb's friend propped his feet in the seat of the chair beside him and nodded. That's a good one, he said. Webb's continued to eye Bass with suspicion. You know, since this is going to take a little while, Bass said, I should go on feed the horses. You don't mind, do you? Webb didn't blink. He shook his head. Cornmeal's free, too, he said. Suit yourself, Bass said. He stood up, plucked his silver dollar off the table, and heard Webb stand up and strike his boot heels across the floor behind him. Webb followed from a distance as Bass unhitched the reins from the rail and led the horses into the barn. Webb waited at the barn door while Bass stalled them and loosened their saddle girths and filled their feed troughs. Bass even removed his Winchester from his saddle scabbard and leaned it against the corn crib, hoping to convince Webb to trust him that he meant him no harm. Bass strode the length of the barn with a smile while Webb stood his ground in the light of the doorway with the squared stance of a man ready to raise his weapon and fire. At any movement of Webb's right hand and barrel motion, Bass could dive off in the hay and draw later. That would be his best option. With each step he took that Webb didn't move aside from his stance, Bass was ready to dive off in the hay, beneath a wagon, beneath a horse, behind a stall door, behind a saddle stand. He was ready to dive off when the cook called out from the ranch house that breakfast was ready. Bass was ready. Music to my big ears, he said to Webb. At point-blank range, too close now to Webb for Bass to dive off, Webb's best chance to kill him, Webb stepped back and let him pass. Bass crossed the road and took the porch steps, but Webb was slow to follow, his footsteps mute in the dust. When Bass entered the dining hall, he found Floyd eating from a plate of scrambled eggs and brains, and Webb's friend still sitting where he'd been sitting, his pistol still in his hand, but held listlessly in his lap. As Bass sat down, he saw in the mirror across the room that Webb had taken a seat on one of the benches in the dog run. Bass sighed and dropped into his chair. Looks good, don't it? Uh-huh, Floyd said without raising his head. Bass said a silent prayer as he pulled his plate closer to him. He glanced again at Webb in the mirror as he chewed his first bite. What he had done with the horses by unpreparing them for chase must have gone a long way to convince Webb he really meant no harm. Cully! Webb barked. Webb's friend Cully slid his boots off the chair they were propped in, scraped his chair back, and scuffed out. Floyd kept eating, and so did Bass, but Bass ate with his head up, watching Cully in the mirror pass through the open door and join Webb on the bench. Webb whispered, and Cully leaned in. Bass looked toward the kitchen for the cook, but the cook was gone. 
He reached for his cup of coffee and Webb was gesturing toward Bass and Floyd with wider eyes and a lift of his hand. When I signal, Bass whispered, and he made a sucking sound through his teeth. You take Cully. I'll jump Webb. Floyd laid his fork on his empty plate, then sucked his teeth in confirmation. Webb and Cully didn't appear to hear them, but they were settling down, no longer gesturing or whispering, both quietly facing the backs of Bass and Floyd. Bass picked up his fork again. The brains were bland. He preferred them seasoned with peppers and onions. Webb and Cully hadn't moved in some time. Floyd leaned on his elbows, sipped his coffee. Bass finally put his fork down and reached for his cup once more and took a sip. Pretty good eats, Floyd said. Bass swished the coffee around his mouth as a rinse and swallowed. Yeah, pretty good for free. He wiped his mouth and mustache on his sleeves. First the left side on his left sleeve, then the right on his right then rubbed his hands on his pants legs to make sure they were dry and quick and wouldn't slip. Floyd slid his chair back. Bass glanced at the mirror as he stood and turned, and it was as if Webb and Cully were statues of cowboys sitting on a bench. These were the moments Bass lived for, as if the moments themselves cracked open their yokes, and in that slow time there was nothing but energy, the energy of goodwill and evil intentions, bucking like mustangs on a level field, when God allowed him to hear and see and feel what God did. He stepped out first into the dog run and patted his stomach, a small excuse to have a hand so close to gripping a six-shooter. Much obliged, gentlemen, he said, much obliged. Webb nodded stiffly, his small eyes bulging, more blue now than gray. Bass could see he was ready to do anything, shoot a man in the back, any man, to get rid of his fear and feel right again. Bass crossed the dog run and sat down on the second bench against the bunkhouse wall on the end closer to Webb. Floyd sat on the opposite end. Bass looked over at Webb. If y'all ever looking for good help, he said. Webb nodded through a delayed, a delayed pause. When he spoke, he spoke with a forced evenness. I make room for good help. Bass nodded. Good to know. Yep, Floyd said. Cully struck a match on the sole of his boot and stoked up his cigar. By the length of time the blacksmith had hammered without a break, Bass wondered if he was forging something long and useful for himself, like tongs. You know, on second thought, Webb said, he stood from his bench, his revolver, revolver still in his right hand by his side. He walked over to Bass, who was still patting his stomach, and stopped in front of him. If you don't mind... Webb said, I think I will have that silver dollar. Bass looked at Webb with steady eyes. Course, he said, but without moving his hand from his stomach to retrieve it. I got more than one, though. How many you want? 
Cully stood up and walked around Webb, his revolver also in his right hand by his side. He stopped in front of Floyd, his cigar tucked in the corner of his mouth. Bass smiled. I always keep a few dollars on me because my baby girls love them, just love them. I give them one every time I come back home. My boy likes things like a saddle or a gun or something. But my girls, now they have a thing for silver, really do. Of course, they're younger. Just one, Webb said. He gazed at Bass and Bass nodded but didn't move yet to retrieve it. If you're going to work for me someday, I can't let you believe I'm a pushover. The one's enough. Now, come on, Bass laughed. Webb's eyes were locked on him while Cully's darted back and forth between Bass and Floyd, leaving Bass with no opportunity to suck his teeth. Who would take you for a pushover, he said. You seem fair, but you seem tough. No, sir, no pushover. Not like me with my young'uns. That's why I'm still traveling all the time like a damn young man. I should be settled down on my own farm raising cattle and growing cantaloupes and corn and such, you know? You know what I'm talking about, right? You giving me that dollar, Webb said. Bass stilled his hand on his stomach. The blacksmith had stopped hammering. A sulfurous hiss of yellow pig iron cooling in tub water carried across the air, and Bass believed he could smell it. I know you ain't asking for more than one, Bass said, but I want to give you more than it. I want to give you some advice. Webb's muscles constricted throughout his whole body so that he looked an inch shorter. Bass glanced at Cully, his brown eyes as hard and small as rusted nail heads, his cigar forgotten in the corner of his mouth. These two clearly thought his advice was a warning of violence. Bass returned his attention to Webb and paused for a breath. Ever fed your horses on ripe cantaloupe? He smiled, instantly seeing the letdown in Webb's eyes. Gives them a burst of energy like nothing else. Better than cornmeal even, no joke. And happy? Man, I'm telling you happy. A cough from the road almost startled Bass into turning. Then Webb turned, his jerk profile an opportunity. So Bass lunged. With no time for signals, he grabbed the barrel of Webb's pistol and wrenched it out of his hand, flinging it clattering onto the porch and thrusting his left hand around Webb's throat, wrapped completely around it like a bandana, choking him as he whipped out his colt with his right hand and jammed the muzzle against Webb's clenched left eye. Webb burbled sounds of giving up. Bass held firm and looked away to see how Floyd was handling Cully. But Floyd hadn't moved at all from the bench. His weapon was still holstered while Cully's was raised, aimed high at Bass's head. I'll pause there. That was From Hell on the Border. Thank you.